Do you believe in ghosts? Do you believe some of us can never move on even after death? That the souls of the tormented are doomed to haunt the places and people that mattered most to them? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained, the podcast that pretends it's too cool to believe in things like ghosts, but leaves a light on just in case. I'm your host, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor and a podcaster. This week, Haunted Broadway. The rumors and legends that travel through the theater community, making us occasionally question if we're the only one waiting in the wing, or if the spirit of some long-dead troubadour is hovering next to us, also listening for their cue to go on. One thing you'll come to learn about me as we take this podcasting journey together is that I don't really believe in ghosts and that I can't stand the thought that when we die, all we do is hang around the same places we spent time at during our lives. That said, if ghosts do exist and they do haunt places, it seems to me the most logical place for ghosts to haunt is a theater. A big cavernous space that's empty a lot and when it isn't, it's filled with drama. It's hard to say if there are so many haunted theater stories because theaters are ripe for haunting or because theater people in general tend to be a bit out there and superstitious and, I'm just going to say it, a little overdramatic. If you want to piss an actor off, tell them good luck. If you want to wish them luck, tell them break a leg. I think that has something to do with bowing, but I'm not sure and that's not what this episode is about. Never whistle in a theater. And never, never say Macbeth in a theater. Unless you're in a production of Macbeth, in which case, it's fine. The play itself is said to be cursed. Two actors centuries apart died when one of the battle scenes got out of hand. Something tells me there weren't fight coordinators back in the day. A lot of bad shit has happened around Macbeth, but the weirdest is that in New York City in 1849, a riot broke out during a performance between rivaling fans of different actors. 22 people died. New Yorkers do not mess around when it comes to their favorite actors. I was once in the middle of a chat with a New York theater critic who shall remain nameless, but it rhymes with ex-eed. When suddenly, and without warning, he lost interest and said, I'm sorry, I thought you were Susan Egan, and then walked away. For those of you who don't know, Susan Egan played Belle in the original company of Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. She spells her last name different than me, and she jokes that she's the Egan without the Tony Award. Anyway, if you're ever in a theater and you find yourself having to refer to Macbeth, just say the Scottish play. I started acting when I was nine years old. When I was 11 in 1991, yes, I am that old, I won a Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Musical for The Secret Garden. I tell you this not to brag, but to set the stage for today's episode. I am still the youngest female ever to win a Tony. I tell you this to brag. Audrey Hepburn presented me with my Tony and kissed me on the head. I had no idea how big a deal that was at the time. I don't think I knew who Audrey Hepburn was. I barely knew what the Tony Awards were. Seriously, I don't think I had ever even watched the Tonys before that year. I didn't grow up wanting to be an actor. My parents didn't have a lot of money, and what they did have wasn't spent on theater tickets. 
My dad had been an actor in the 60s and had gone in and out of retirement from acting his whole life. My mother, a self-declared socialist, probably thought of Broadway as a playground for the bourgeois. When I announced just before my ninth birthday that I wanted to try acting, my parents were cautiously supportive. They had heard the tales of all those child actors being chewed up by show business and tossed out like a used, dirty dance belt. But they took me to an audition for a musical version of A Christmas Carol narrated by Tiny Tim. I think they thought maybe I'd do an audition or two and get it out of my system. Long story short, I got cast as Tiny Tim. About three months after A Christmas Carol closed, I was on Broadway in Les Miserables. I did not get it out of my system. My mom was like, well, shit, I guess we're doing this now. There are a handful of Broadway theaters that people claim are haunted. Today's episode is about the two haunted theaters I worked in. The theater where we did The Secret Garden, my second Broadway show, was the St. James on 44th Street between 8th Avenue and Broadway. If you've ever seen the movie Birdman, you've seen a lot of the St. James Theater. If you haven't seen the movie Birdman, don't bother. Seriously. Skip it. The lobby and theater of the St. James are peppered with beautiful, ornate details. The ceiling in the theater is particularly beautiful. I thought it was the most beautiful theater I'd ever seen. Granted, it was still one of the only theaters I had ever seen. Les Miserables was at the Broadway Theater on 52nd and Broadway, which was renovated in the mid-80s and just sort of looked like a big place with seats in it, you know? At least that's my memory of it. Anyway, what I didn't know about the St. James Theater is that there were a couple of ghosts hanging around backstage. It's probably just as well I didn't know. I was only 11 years old, shouldering a multi-million dollar Broadway show, and my mom was dying of cancer. If someone had been like, oh, yeah, just watch out for the ghosts, I would have been the youngest Tony winner ever to also be locked in a padded room in a straitjacket. Know what I mean? One of the ghosts of the St. James likes to laugh at inappropriate moments during a show. During a performance of one of the 6,580 revivals of Gypsy in 2008, while Laura Benanti sang Little Lamb, the ghost burst out laughing. Now, to be fair, that song is, I'm going to say, unintentionally funny, to be kind. She sings, Little bear, little bear, you sit on my right, right there. And that's all she has to say about Little Bear. Like, okay, cool observation. One of the lyrics is, Little lamb, little lamb, I wonder how old I am. I mean, look, I get it. She's supposed to be a kid whose mom makes her lie about her age, but still. In my own humble opinion, it is a pretty goofy song. Sorry, Stephen Sondheim, it's not your best. I never heard the laughing ghost of the St. James, although at one performance, the entire balcony was made up of school kids who talked and laughed through the whole show. I wasn't on that day, but I was at the theater doing a benefit bake sale for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, and I happened to walk backstage at the moment when Mandy Patinkin, the male lead in the show, you might know him as the CIA guy from Homeland or Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, he yelled, Stop! Stop the music! He pointed to the balcony. You! You there! You should be ashamed of yourselves! And then lectured them about etiquette. He got a huge round of applause. It was 
pretty epic. Incidentally, if you were one of those kids, I would love to hear from you about what that was like. Were you like, oh shit, Inigo Montoya is screaming at us? Or were you like, who's this asshole? One of the weirdest things about this laughing ghost that haunts the St. James is that no one knows who it is or why they're there. Most haunted theater stories involve ghosts of people who either spent a lot of time at the theater they're haunting or died there. But the ghost causing the shenanigans over at the St. James just seems to be super random. As far as I know, no one has uncovered the story of some actor who laughed himself to death on stage there one night and is now doomed to spend eternity laughing during other people's shows. There's something extra creepy about some random ghost hanging around. Like, don't you have somewhere better to be? The thing is, The Secret Garden, the show I did at the St. James, is about death and ghosts. There are literally 11 ghosts that haunt the characters in the story. So I feel like if there were ghosts in the theater, we would have experienced them. As far as I know, no one involved in The Secret Garden had any weird encounters. I even checked with a couple of my castmates for this podcast, and no one had any ghost stories. Also, if a ghost was going to laugh at anything, you'd think they would laugh at human beings pretending to be ghosts. You know? There was actually one wayward spirit that haunted the St. James for a couple of years in the mid-90s. Very few people know this story. In 1993 and 94, a sad young girl could often be seen hovering around the stairs at the back of the house watching The Who's Tommy, which was adapted for Broadway from the rock opera from the 60s and was the first show to go into the St. James after The Secret Garden closed in 1993. She hung around backstage, too. There used to be an open fire escape with a staircase that led up the back of the theater with windows to all the dressing rooms. The fire escape stairs started in the alley where the stage door was. Cast members frequently saw the girls suddenly appear outside their dressing rooms, waving at them from their windows while they were half-dressed, getting ready for a show. She was known to swoon at almost every male cast member. At least half the men in the company swore she flirted aggressively with them. In fact, it's likely the owners of the theater put a locked fire gate at the bottom of the stairs because she was so frequently sneaking up the fire escape and bothering the men in the cast. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why would they need to put a locked gate up for a ghost? But I never said she was a ghost. She was 14-year-old me. And now you know one of the most embarrassing things about me. Coming up, the most infamous haunted Broadway theater, the ghost that lives in its walls, and the truly bizarre Christopher Walken. The most infamous haunted theater is the Belasco Theater on 44th Street and 7th Avenue. In 2000 and 2001, I was in James Joyce's The Dead with Christopher Walken, who incidentally came to rehearsal one day wearing these weird black rubber shoes. And when someone asked him what the hell they were, he announced, They're my rocket ship shoes. I have a lot of Christopher Walken stories, as I know anyone who has worked with him does, but this episode isn't about Christopher Walken, though Lord knows he is strange and unexplained. The Belasco Theater was named for David Belasco, who in life was a pretty over-the-top dude. 
Belasco built his theater, which he named after himself, in 1926. Of course, no one can know for sure what his motives for building a theater might have been, but as you're about to find out, it wouldn't be at all surprising if he built the theater as an excuse to have a parade of chorus girls under his employ traipsing around half-nude. I'm going to take a quick detour right now to paint a picture of what Times Square and the theater district were like in the early 20th century because it's bonkers. The area that we call Times Square now was originally the hub of the horse and carriage trade for New York City in a part of the city called the Tenderloin, which in 1901 had, ready for it, 132 brothels and about as many bars over the span of 10 city blocks. 132 brothels. I guess horse and carriage men were a super horny and thirsty lot. Between 1903 and 1928, 35 of the 41 Broadway theaters that still operate today were built. Now, why, you might ask yourself, were people building theaters around all this debauchery? Here's my theory. Most, if not all, of the theaters were initially built to hold more risque reviews, like the Ziegfeld Follies, which was basically just a parade of scantily clad showgirls peppered with some comedy bits. While Shakespeare was building a theater in England to house his plays, New Yorkers were like, show me them titties. So the theater district of the 1970s and 80s that became synonymous with drugs, peep shows, and sex work was actually not that different from its roots. It wasn't until the early 90s that city officials and developers teamed up to clean it up that folks like Disney and the M&M store moved in. It still looks completely foreign to me whenever I visit. Rather than a mecca for the seedy underbelly type like it was when I worked there as a kid, Times Square and the theater district has become a mecca for consumerism and branding. And look, I know it's safer, and that's great. I know it's nice not to get mugged on your way to the subway after a matinee of hair, but to me, Times Square and the theater district today is devoid of any soul or character. Anyway... I'm just going to go ahead and assume that Belasco built his theater as a way to gain easy access to women. He was a known womanizer. Belasco wore a priest's collar despite being a Jew because he wanted to stand out, which, I mean, okay. I feel like everything I read or saw about that had people saying how weird it was for a Jew to wear a priest's collar, and no one seemed to just be like, it's weird for anyone who isn't a priest to wear a priest's collar. Like, it's not a normal accessory. You know? Belasco built himself a 10-room apartment above the theater where he would have parties and generally entertain guests, including chorus girls, who are generally not children, but actually adult women. But we call them girls because the patriarchy. I should mention that Belasco was in his 70s when he built himself this swingers pad. He was also married, and I'm going to go ahead and place a hefty bet that he and his wife weren't polyamorous. You feel me? Now look, I'm super sex positive, and I think people of all ages should enjoy as much sex as they can handle. But imagine you're a 19-year-old gal from 
Omaha with legs up to your neck who wants to be a silent movie star. You move to New York City to tread the boards on Broadway before heading out to Hollywoodland, USA, and you shuffle step hop your way into the newest show at the Belasco Theater on Broadway. Can you imagine your luck? Now imagine your married, 75-year-old boss who wears a fucking priest's collar instructs you to get in the elevator immediately after a show. An elevator, by the way, he had built backstage that went directly to his apartment, at which point he undoubtedly had his limp dick already pulled out waiting to fondle you. You can't tell me that shit is consensual. Guys, it's not normal to have an elevator backstage. That's not a thing. And it's certainly not normal to have an elevator backstage that goes directly to your boss's gross den of iniquity. It's also not normal to have a 10-room apartment built on the top floor of your theater, by the way. And I will say, despite what it was used for, that is pretty badass. Even F. Scott Fitzgerald thought it was badass. Fitzgerald thought Belasco and his apartment were so badass, in fact, he mentions him in The Great Gatsby. Belasco had an immense collection of books and artifacts from all over the place. The architecture in his apartment was ornate and beautiful. He had a grotto. A grotto. Anyway... There are lots of stories of people being visited by Belasco, even though he died in 1931. He hangs out in the balcony during rehearsals. So dedicated a producer was he, he's still doing it in death. Obviously, if you've already heard that a ghost hangs out in your workplace, the chances of you seeing that ghost, or at least thinking you've seen that ghost, are pretty good. But people who had never heard the stories of how Belasco haunted his own theater have reported seeing him and asking who the person sitting in the balcony was. And I have to wonder how that conversation goes, you know? Like, hey, who's that priest sitting up in the balcony? Oh, that guy? That's the ghost of David Belasco. Um, excuse me? Oh, yeah, yeah, he likes to watch rehearsals. Hopefully he'll come to opening night. (gasps) That's my cue, gotta go. A five, six, seven, eight. The legend goes, if he attends opening night, you'll have good luck, and if he doesn't, you'll have bad luck. According to her own account, Melissa Errico, the Tony-nominated actress who played Mina in Dracula the Musical at the Belasco in 2004, said she saw a man in a priest collar walk past her in the hallway outside her dressing room and walk through a mirror into the wall. She told her dresser, Kathy, about it, and Kathy was like, oh yeah, girl, that's the ghost of David Belasco. He lives behind that mirror. Unflappable Kathy rocks. Except that if that had been me, I would have been like, um, what? You didn't think to warn me about that shit? Like, it's just normal for you that dudes walk into and through mirrors? But even before that... How did Melissa Errico not scream bloody murder when a person walked through the wall right in front of her? Like, I don't know, maybe hang a sign by the mirror in the hallway? Caution, dead guy uses this mirror as a portal? Like, hang a fucking curtain over it, something. Also, can I just point out for accuracy's sake that David Belasco didn't live behind wherever that mirror was? Like, that's not where his apartment was. Melissa Erica was the female lead of the show. Her dressing room had to be on the second floor. The first floor is reserved for stage managers, stage door people, and the green room, usually. David Belasco lived in a palatial suite at the top of the theater. 
So which is it? I don't know. Maybe once the apartment went into disrepair after years of being locked up, he was like, ugh, this place is a dump. Fuck it, I'm going to go live in the wall somewhere. One of the creepiest things about Belasco's ghost, as if being a ghost isn't creepy enough, is that he appears fully formed and in color. When most people report seeing a ghost, it's usually some wispy, see-through nonsense. But Belasco is often mistaken for a regular living dude because of how regular person-y he looks. Whatever show goes into the Belasco when live theater is a thing again in 2030 should be on alert for a 3D, solid-looking guy with gray hair wearing a priest collar who lives in a mirror. Stephen Henderson, who played Van Helsing, the vampire hunter in Dracula, reported standing in the wing waiting for his entrance when a voice came from behind him and said, excuse me. And Stephen was like, oh yeah, sorry, and stepped aside. And a man with a dark suit and a priest's collar walked by him. I don't know where this guy walked off to because in the video clip I watched about it, the paranormal investigator started bombarding Henderson with a whole bunch of leading questions. He was like, this was a fully formed, solid-looking person, right? In color, with shadows and everything. So we'll never know if he disappeared into a wall, went up the elevator, or entered stage left. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with how backstage areas work, random people not associated with the show don't just stroll around back there during performances. There are many people you have to get through, generally, to get backstage. There's the stage door person who's basically like the guy with the clipboard at the velvet rope. You're not getting in if you're not on the list. Anyway, either Stephen Henderson waiting backstage to go on at the Belasco didn't know the rule about strangers backstage, or he had a constitution of steel. Because if that had been me, I wouldn't have just been like, oh, sure, and stepped aside. I would have screamed, stranger danger, and ran onto the stage, regardless of if it was my cue to enter or not. Although with my luck, it would probably be one of the producers that I just didn't recognize, and that would be my final performance. The Tony Award-winning musical Passing Strange played at the Belasco in 2008. I didn't see Passing Strange because I was living in L.A. at the time, working at a university in retirement from show business. But my producer, Patrick Hines, wants you to know that Passing Strange was fucking amazing! Was that a good Patrick Hines impression? Thank you. Actor Daniel Breaker reported seeing an old white guy in the mirror behind him in his dressing room one night at Passing Strange, which was weird on two fronts. One, the cast was entirely black, and two, again, random people aren't allowed to just tour theaters during shows. When Daniel turned around, the man was gone. The house manager's office at the Belasco is located just beneath Mr. Belasco's 10-room party pad, which, like Belasco himself, is now a derelict ghost of its former self. Most of its contents were either looted or sold off. The whole place is covered in a century of dust. More than one house manager over time at the Belasco has reported hearing footsteps, 1920s music, and general merriment coming from the rooms upstairs. I suppose it bears mentioning that the entrance to Mr. Belasco's theater apartment is locked and under pretty tight security, including motion sensor lights and alarms. 
One house manager heard the commotion upstairs so often she was just like, meh, there they go again. House managers have also reported their own office doors randomly locking on their own. Now here's what I don't understand. If you worked under a haunted bachelor pad where parties filled with ghosts are regularly held, why don't you get a recording of that shit? Oh, I'm sorry, are you the one person on the planet who wouldn't jump at the chance to prove that ghosts are real? Like, grab your phone and hop on Instagram and be like, hear that? That's a ghost party, y'all. Or set up cameras, something. David Belasco isn't the only ghost said to haunt the Belasco Theater. There's also the Blue Lady, or the Lady in Robin's Egg Blue, who is rumored to have been one of Belasco's girlfriends slash employees who either fell or was pushed down the elevator shaft to her death in 1925. No one knows her name, and as far as I can tell, there weren't any reports of a death like that in the papers in 1925, so... This might be a complete fabrication. Regardless, some people swear they have seen the lady in Robin's Egg Blue. I never saw any ghosts at the Belasco. The one time I came down to the stage left wing for my entrance at the top of the show and one of my castmates said, Are you okay? You look like you've seen a ghost. Seeing a ghost was not what happened. What happened was that Christopher Walken was having some kind of bad night and decided to take it out on me as I made my way downstairs to the stage. Listen, I'm not here to put Christopher Walken on blast or whatever the kids are saying these days. Chances are, if you said my name to Christopher Walken, he would have no idea who you were talking about. But at the time, I like to give Chris a hard time, the same way I give everyone a hard time. Just because he was a celebrity was not a reason to treat him any differently than anyone else, as far as I was concerned. For example, if anyone pulls a half-eaten, lint-covered pickle or apple out of their pocket and takes a bite, like Chris does all the time, I'm going to ask them what the fuck is wrong with them. To me, that's just the logical response to eating pocket leftovers. So when Chris, a native New Yorker, asked me how much the subway cost, it was just natural for me to respond by saying, what the fuck is your life? Most of the time, he seemed pretty down with this dynamic. He would just chuckle, at least. But I guess one day it hit him the wrong way, and he was chewing it over in his mind all day, like a lint-covered pickle, until I passed by his dressing room and he kind of let me have it. I swear on my life, his eyes were bugged at least a half inch out of his skull, and he was kind of red, and said... The things you've been saying about me are really offensive, and I want you to stop. And again, I thought we just had a dynamic, so I was completely taken off guard, and I said, what have I been saying? And he seemed momentarily confused and said, Oh, you don't know. And I was like, no. And he said, Well, you think about it, and if you still don't know, you come back, and I'll tell you. Honestly, I'm not sure which is scarier, being yelled at by Christopher Walken at your place's call or seeing a ghost walk into a mirror. He winked at me on stage that night by way of apology, which I did not find acceptable, and I didn't speak to him for weeks. 
Then I read a long piece about him in The New Yorker in which I found out his real name is Ronald. So obviously, the first thing I said to him after weeks of angry silence was, How's it going, Ronnie? But come on, what would you have done? Anyway, one last note on ghosts in theaters. By now, you've likely seen the iconic image of an empty stage with a single lampstand and a bare bulb lighting up a small circle around it in an otherwise dark theater. This is the ghost light. The ghost light gets placed downstage center after the set has been struck and everyone has gone home for the night, and it stays on till the stage door person comes in and turns the work lights on. The ghost light serves a practical purpose. The last thing anyone needs is someone groping around a dark stage and plummeting off the edge because they couldn't see where the stage ended. But, as I pointed out earlier, theater people tend to be a superstitious bunch, so the legend of the ghost light has taken on mystical meaning over time. The story goes that one light is kept lit on stage either to keep the ghosts away or to keep the stage bright for the ghosts when we're not there. Because we all know that while ghosts are dead and can walk through mirrors and disappear into thin air, they still appreciate not being left in the dark. I mean, honestly, what the hell is a ghost except for a soul who clearly does not want to be left in the dark, literal or proverbial? The true story behind the ghost light is a lot less fantastical. Back in the days of gas-powered lamps, you had to keep one line open to prevent gas buildup, so one gas lamp was kept lit when the theater wasn't in use, just to prevent the theater from blowing up. Yet, long after we stopped using gas lights, the ghost light tradition has remained, whether because of practicality or superstition. It's now a universal sign of a stage waiting for occupants. During the pandemic, while all the Broadway theaters are closed, the ghost light took on new symbolism for the Broadway community. A reminder that the lights never fully go out on Broadway, or indeed any theater. And that when this is all over, the ghost light will still be there, welcoming theater people, dead or alive, back to their most beloved haunt. It is a reminder of the power of storytelling the resiliency of artists, and the fact that most actors will play for any audience, including the dead. If they get a laugh, it'll be all the sweeter. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, Amelia Earhart, icon, glass ceiling breaker, retired banker living in New Jersey? You may think you know her story, but do you? And you definitely haven't heard some of the theories of what became of her. I think one of them might be correct. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. Whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. On our website, you can find a complete list of sources and the promo codes for ad sponsors. This episode was written by me, edited by Claire Smith-Marish, and researched by Sierra Fox. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. <laughs>